Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Drainage! That's my best... Daniel Day-Lewis impression. <laughs> Maybe that's what I should do at the beginning of all these podcasts to catch people's attention is uh, do a uh, just one to get it out of the way, an impression of one of the lines from the movie. I don't know. But uh, in all seriousness, today on Pop Violence, we're talking about There Will Be Blood, which is animated by the fantastic performance of Daniel Day-Lewis as well as Paul Dano and just a, a, an incredibly... Um, well done production under the direction of Paul Thomas Anderson as I've contemplated this conversation that I'm about to share with you and as I've contemplated the film further I feel like really at the crux of what we're talking about today is we're talking about this deception and manipulation that comes from the hyper-religious inclinations of humanity particularly perhaps in the pre-modern sort of era, pre-modern thinking of humanity and how that has succumbed or is succumbing to the inevitable violence and blasphemy and degradation that comes with modernity and capitalism. It's a deeply simple commentary that cuts to the very core of who we are. I want to make my listeners aware that I recorded this call from a very remote location and so forgive me and bear with me as my audio is not of the highest quality for this conversation. I thank you for your attention and hope you do enjoy. I'm Tim and you're listening to Pop Violence. Welcome and, and thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Pop Violence. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. And like, this is sweet because I, I, we've sort of been connected by a, a mutual friend. I think that we can have a really good conversation. So I'm stoked. Um, but Angie, um, I guess I want to ask what uh if you could if you could just talk a little bit about yourself and, and introduce yourself um to whatever extent you want to our our listeners that that might not know you absolutely um i didn't even think this part through i thought I <laughs> but not the actual personal part um so uh, i'm angie tolaman I, I live in harrisonburg virginia which is how we got interconnected here mm-hmm. uh, i'm an alum of bridgewater college where i studied theater um, and actually the last thing I turned in this paper and then I was a graduate was a paper analyzing um, Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. Um, a friend of mine had told me to watch it. I'd never seen it before. And then the rest is history. I would love <laughs> to watch this film shot by shot. I would willingly do it, but we don't have the time for that. <laughs> and I don't think anyone wants to hear me do that. Um, but I am an actor a director and um, a Paul Thomas Anderson fan, the big three things. 
Yes, there you go. That is so awesome. And yeah, I, I'm like, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm excited that I, I'm talking with you about a film that not only you are very passionate about, but that you've also done like some really in-depth analysis on, because I feel like that's going to give like a really good element to uh, these podcasts where, you know, we try, I try to incorporate some like real, some good analysis and like film review, but like, I don't have always like the, enough uh i just don't have enough there i guess to really get into the, that side of it i get more into like the social issue side of it which we're going to be touching on but we've got we've got a little bit of a one-two punch that i think is going to be really great here um do, do you think i just want to say like acknowledging a couple of sources moving forward just because we are going to be referencing this paper that i wrote about and a lot you know i love paul thomas anderson i gather a lot of my own you know, thoughts, feelings, opinions off of his, the films themselves. But I do want to just acknowledge like a couple of sources. So that way it doesn't just sound like there are ideas that we're talking about. Um, There's uh, Gregory Allen Phipps, uh, his Making the Milk into Milkshake, adapting Upton Sinclair's Oil into Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. Um, And George Toll's Paul Thomas Anderson Contemporary Film Directors. And then Adam Naiman's um, coverage of Paul Thomas Anderson masterworks. Um, we're probably going to be referencing a lot from the three of those. Um, so I just want to make sure we get those out there. Yes, awesome. And I will make sure for those listening that we include those references in the show notes. Wonderful. I guess I said I wanted to first talk to you about why you thought of this film for this podcast. But first, I, I kind of feel like the, the energy is directing me towards, I would just love to hear about like what's, because you, you told, you just kind of told this story. I didn't even know that, that you hadn't ever seen this film and then a friend suggested it to you. Uh, and then I, the, rest is, the rest is history, right? Yes, exactly. Um, it was a very, friend of, a very good friend of mine. Um, we had met through like the German studies program, I'm pretty sure. Mm. I'm pretty sure that was our first meeting. Uh, Will, if you listen to this, thank you so much. You changed my life. I love this movie. Um, but he had suggested like, hey, if you've never seen it, you need to watch this. Like, I think you would really like it. And I watched it once and I was like, that was awesome. I loved it. And then I was thinking about what I was going to do for this film class I was in. And we had studied um, PTA's Magnolia as a class and emotionally drained me. Great movie, emotionally drained me. And I thought, what if I talk about Paul Thomas Anderson as a whole? Like he sometimes has this through line of fathers and sons. Like there's obviously a lot of potential and I liked There Will Be Blood the first time I watched it. Um, And it's an intense, it's an intense movie uh, for many, many reasons, especially the violent aspects and the length. It's a two hour and 38 minute movie. Like that's, it's a lot to um, consume. But somehow every single time I watch it, it's just as good as the first time. If not, like I pick up on different things that make me love it even more or Mm -hmm. make it even better. Um, And so it's just one of those things that I've latched onto. Like to me, There Will Be Blood is the film in my brain of, you know, of success as far as directing, acting, cinematography, the score, the every detail of it. I'm like, now that's like a great movie. And it's just, that's what is in my brain now. So that's why I'm really excited to talk about it. I will talk about it whenever, anytime anybody wants to talk about it. Um, but when you suggested, um, you know, any uh, for me to come up with any ideas for this podcast, um, I originally was like, I probably won't talk about it. 
because maybe I talk about it too much. <laughs> but it's this idea that, I mean, the, the film is violent and it's called There Will Be Blood. It's prophetic. It, it tells you that there will be blood in this film and it comes in various degrees. So for those who haven't seen it, there's going to be a lot of spoilers. In oh, yeah. Because we have to. Um, but, you know, every moment of violence within the film, you know, you never want to say violence is necessary or um, or is like the story like you never really want to like uh, be like yeah everything with violence is good but every every bit of violence like within the film is enhanced and fitting because of the characters within it I think it never feels like Paul Thomas Anderson is like oh it'd be really cool to include x y and z and the violent aspects of it instead it feels like these violent aspects are natural progressions of the film as a whole and i think it's just a cool thing to unpack and to understand it in a larger you know larger picture yeah that's really fascinating i think you just like totally almost like hit the nail on the head for what was what was coming up for me because when i when i watched it this week because for whatever reason I haven't, I haven't watched this film for like a long time. It like, I think I watched it. Oh man. I feel like the last time I watched this film was probably in 2015, maybe Okay. until, until this week. And so it's been a while and I didn't remember it very well. And it almost felt like it was like a fresh watch. I feel like I'm a different person than I was in 2015. So it's a whole new person watching the film. And I definitely like when I was walking away from it and thinking of, because obviously I watched it for the purpose of the podcast. Um, as I was walking away from watching, that was sort of almost exactly what I was thinking. Like this just, the, the prophetic sort of nature that, that sort of, uh, I guess, just hangs over the entire film in regards to the violence um, that's sort of at the heart of it. Um, mm -hmm. That definitely was what sort of stood out to me as how this uh, this film relates to sort of the theme of the podcast and also just sort of, you know, what what society looks like, what, you know, what the world kind of, what goes on in the world and what has gone on in like the history, like the, the people who came before us in, in the society that we live in. And so, yeah, it's it's really, really fascinating. And I do want to make one other note that that is something you, you said that I think is like, I have like a whole page of notes here, but um, one of the first things that I noticed in terms of filmmaking when I first started watching was definitely the score. And I don't remember ever thinking about this score before then. And it's fun. I always, um, when I found this out, I was like, oh, this is wild. Uh, that Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead, um, he is responsible. Yeah. He composed this. And he also composed um, Phantom Thread um, a few years later with Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm. Uh, but Johnny Greenwood is the one responsible for this. And I think the score is going to come up a lot in understanding um, this movie. And um, the, it, I mean, the score, it has certain moments of it where they're very like, oh yes, this definitely fits the time period. Like it, you know, it feels like it belongs there. And at the same time, the whole entire score is, is, is dissonant. It makes you uncomfortable. It makes you, it makes you uncomfortable and at the same time it feels very natural which just yeah. adds another layer to that same theme that comes through through both cinematography with Robert Elswit who is the DP on this and through the acting especially with Daniel mm. Day-Lewis who plays Daniel Plainview 
and Paul Dano, who is Eli Sunday. And those are the, you know, that's the main conflict within the film too, are those two characters. Yeah, certainly. And I just, I think of like that, uh, the opening scene um, where he's in the silver mine and, and when the, when you get the shot that just sort of is overlooking the desert and without, without, you know, view of anything else, just like the screeching, uh, like, like score, I guess, or the music. I was like, Whoa, this is giving me chills like right off the bat. And especially in regards to some of the stuff that I read in your analysis of the film in regards to how, I guess how almost the, the environment itself becomes a bit of a, almost like a character or it has its own sort of arc um, in the film and a relationship to how the violence is developing. And so I guess let's, maybe we should segue into that, talking a little bit about, I wanna hear, I guess you kind of unpack and talk through a little bit of, of what you found in this analysis that you sort of took on um, of this film. Absolutely. Um, I don't even know where to start and it's my <laughs> um, Let me first say that I think a good place to start in understanding, in, in talking about this film, especially because we're probably going to be jumping around um, mm-hmm. throughout the film chronologically and then also thematically because, like I said, I, I view this as the perfect film because everything intertwines so perfectly. Like he, like everybody, everybody did their job and it created a great movie. Daniel Day-Lewis won his third, second? He won one of his three Oscars uh, for yeah. Best Actor at, from this film. And in his speech, he did say that, you know, he was grateful it came from the mad, beautiful head of Paul Thomas Anderson. And I remember, um, I remember hearing that speech and being like, the film itself is mad, beautiful. Like, it's filled with characters that you love to hate and then destructive images so beautiful you can't look away. It does its job in two ways. One, it tells you a story um, and it, it and in all the ways that it possibly could. It makes you feel things, it makes you analyze, it makes you also anything really. The second thing it does is it shows you how to make a good movie. It it so beautifully demonstrates like stunning shots. Like I, like I said, I would talk about this shot by shot if I could, um, but it really does that. It, it gives you things, you know, you're not just watching it like, I can appreciate art, I can appreciate cinema. You're also fully invested in the characters. Um, and at the same time, like for those who have seen the movie, um, you know, Daniel played you not a good guy. Even when I still watch it, there are moments where I'm actively rooting for him or there are moments, um, you know, in the big climatic, climatic scene in like this, this five minute interval, I'm judging him, but then empathizing with him and then criticizing him, but then rooting for him. And it just happens so fast. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to break down the characters um, in this analysis and like how they then influence everything. I feel like it's going to end up in me talking in circles, but it's just, it, it, I mean, it's perfect to me. It really is. Um, so yes, I basically yes. the analysis kind of, my analysis kind of tackled everything, but at the very center, um, because you have to choose something I learned, um, that was one of my least favorite things about writing papers. <laughs> you know, being concise and narrowing it down. Um, 
is the relationship between Daniel Plainview and Eli Sunday. So uh, Daniel Plainview is, you know, he started as a silver miner, um, eventually found, um, struck oil, uh, which this is kind of, this is established in like this very interesting, approximately 15 minute silent prologue. And then we, we, we now are, you know, there's however many years in the future he's establishing himself and, um, a man who we find out is Paul Sunday played also by, um, Paul Dano who plays Eli. So it's a, a, a twins. Um, he approaches him and says like, you know, I think there's oil in this place. Like you should go. So Daniel and his son, HW, they travel to this town of little Boston under the guise of quail hunting to then find the oil, um, build a derrick and take, basically take over, take all the money, take all the land and keep it for themselves. And I guess for themselves, HW is a child. Um, he's just doing things with his dad. We're not really going to hold him responsible. Um, but in the town of Little Boston, where Daniel is actively um, creating this town, um, there is this, I guess, evangelical is the correct word to use. Um, this evangelical preacher, Eli Sunday, who is actively basically actively coming for Daniel Plainview because of the threat that he poses as another powerful figure um, in the town. And so the movie is basically, yes, it's telling the story of, of Daniel Plainview and, and the, the distribution of oil essentially. And we get this peak, this like a, like a snippet of US history in the West of how you know oil and petrocapitalism all come into the forefront. Well, but the movie as a whole, this whole theme that exists over this time is it's this relentless pursuit um, of another relentless individual. So whether you are saying Daniel Plainview is relentlessly pursuing Eli or Eli is relentlessly pursuing Daniel, um, both are true. Um, and it's this intense relationship between the two of them that as it escalates, so does the violence in the movie. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good, that's a really good introduction. And I think that, yeah, it's kind of confounding the, 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 the double-sidedness, I guess, of it that I felt as I was watching the film. And that was, it's interesting because I felt, I don't want to like skip to the end, but I feel like when we're talking about the film, we have to kind of talk about it in its completeness. So Absolutely. I felt like in like that final scene, I felt like such a good amount of satisfaction in in the the crumbling of Eli Sunday. Absolutely. Um, isn't that isn't that so interesting that you know that because I because I I didn't watch the whole movie and I I mean I felt like I was cognizantly like seeing and acknowledging especially by that time in the film that Daniel Plainview is not a good guy, right? He's not only is he just like ruthlessly capitalistic and just exploitative um, but he's, I mean, he's heartless and he, he, he's just, he's not a good dude. Yeah, but then when he breaks down Eli at the end and he makes him say, I'm a false prophet and God is a superstition. Oh, yeah. It's so satisfying. 
And I was like, wow, like this, like get him, get him, Daniel. I was just, I don't know. It was, I mean, it, it, it was, it, and like the acting in that final scene to me was, is just like top, so top notch. I mean, the whole movie, but like that scene, well, it's just, it's completely like, it pulls you in so much. And so I guess, it, I guess fascinating is one word I could use for it, but well, I want to, I guess I want to kind of get into that a little bit of what, I feel like there's these, there's these big figures in the film, obviously the two primary figures, Daniel and Eli, um, you know, just the, this tension, their sort of their shared story. Um, and I mean, what's the meaning of it, I guess? Like, what is, what does the, all that mean? I mean, we, I, we, we feel so much as we're watching it. Right. And I guess it, maybe it's not, maybe it doesn't have to mean just one thing, but I guess to you, what does it mean? Or what's the, what's the significance of their, of their battle? I think, well, I think if we talk a little bit more about the ending and the very last bit of the film, which like will still make me smile a little bit. And it's sometimes I have to check myself. I'm like, oh my God, why am I, why am I smiling at the end of this horrible, horrible scene? But this yeah. incredible moment where, you know, Eli, who has become like the human equivalent to um, like an oil derrick gushering, like when oil kind of like spills out of the head of the um, of the derrick, you know, he just got, I mean, yeah, okay, we already said spoilers, but you know, his head is yeah. backed in, um, in a very yeah. 2001, a space odyssey, um, you know, primitive way. It's almost as though in order to, you know, okay, okay I'm going to come back to that. Okay. So very ending <laughs> of how, you know, Eli is, or Eli's body is there and Daniel is sitting there and Daniel's butler comes in and Daniel just turns around and he says, I'm finished. And without missing a beat, music kicks in. We get an end screen movie over. And there's something about that I'm finished that is just so informative and also symbolic, but also simplistic and without a care in the world. Um, where it's just, we just watched this entire boxing match, you know, PTA even described their relationship as a boxing match, um, which we can talk about more like the mirror imagery of scenes and characteristics. Um, but you know, it's just like, you just watch this whole movie and I'm going to tell you I'm done and we're just going to cut to black. And there's something yeah. so satisfying about that too. So the big thing of what their relationship means to me is, you know, we spend that whole movie watching them, watching them grapple with one another, not so much themselves, um, which some could argue that's what they needed to do. Uh, but so they grapple with- Ooh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, they grapple with each other, this whole film, and for it to end in such a primitive way, a way that it's, we're, we're in the future a little bit now, you know, there's references to Hollywood kind of establishing itself, which is that cool self-awareness that Paul Thomas Anderson has in pretty much all of his work. But there's this emergence of Hollywood, like we are getting into what we might now define as like, uh, I don't know, the future of something. So it's like the next step into the future, which is where we are right now. You know, but it's so interesting that although it's the, the, the latest point in the timeline in the movie, it is where the most primitive action takes place. Um, 
And so the big thing, my big takeaway, which I also kind of um, was able to gather from that Gregory Allen Phipps um, analysis is that there's nature has been redefined. And that is what this movie is showing us through oil, basically, is that with oil being struck and found and used and turned into a business and we get this, this pure, like, like capitalism as we know it, tooth and nail, like intensity of capitalism. We have to redefine everything. That is now the new normal, the new nature. And that I think is what we're being shown is that we have to go all the way back to this, this, this primitive notion for this to be able to exist, for this to be able to succeed. You know, Daniel Plainview at the end of the day is the one who wins, however you want to look at it, air quotes. You can't see that because we're on a podcast, but you know, wins mm -hmm. in quotes. Uh, and so to me, that's what it is, is it's all about, we're looking at nature being redefined the whole movie. Um, and it's so prominent. There's actually, oh, there's this one really beautiful shot um, which actually happens uh, right at the start of one of my favorite scenes of the movie. It is after this, it's after the climatic, the oil explosion, when Eli Sunday goes, we're assuming it's the next day or a couple days later, all the smoke has cleared everything. Eli is walking along this oil pipe and we see what looks like a lake and it's blue and we see the clouds being reflected in it. And as Eli gets closer to it, we too realize that it is not a lake at all. It is a giant pool of oil that is just reflecting the blue sky. Um, and it's such a smart shot. Whether, whoever's responsible, whether it is Robert Elswit or PTA, it is something that every time I watch it to this day, I just think, God, that is so cool that they mm -hmm. manipulated it so simplistically where we look at it and we're like, oh, look, it's a lake. It's, you know, how it should be it's existing there and then very quickly it switches and you realize no that is a pool of oil and that is now the new nature this idea that you know oil existed underground but once you found out you could use it for a profit that became the thing that you know was the new normal the new natural that's what we're looking at um, and so I think, you know, in, in my analysis, that's kind of what I get at is this, this idea of a new naturals and new accepted realities. And while, you know, I do want to say, and I don't personally believe, and I don't think this was the goal at all, that Eli Sunday is supposed to be the solution to that capitalistic system, because he himself is still you know, perpetuating this new accepted reality, quote unquote, of evangelicalism or, you know, intense sermons, things like that. Things that are still perpetuating like a story or myth or something of that nature. You know, it, it's this rise of new naturals and it's basically who's gonna win when you put these two things up next to each other. So yeah, you've got oil and you've got blood, you've got capitalism and you've got evangelicalism. Those are like the big players um, in there and how oil and blood take over these other natural things like water and milk, which is what Phipps gets into. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. I love, 
Well, let me just say, I guess, where do I want to start with, uh, with commenting on what you said? You really were able to articulate some really powerful points there. I want to speak a little bit to the, na- the new natural, new reality and the relationship between Eli and Daniel in regards to that. And what the impression that I got, and I'm, this is still in incubation in my brain for sure. Like these are all forming thoughts, especially because it's been so long since I've seen the film and like sort of, you know, just digesting it even now. Um, having watched it in the last like seven days. But what really, what it felt like to me almost was seeing a very, very much the transformation or the tension between, I guess, human humanity in like its pre-modern thinking versus its sort of modern thinking and sort of that pre- pre-modernity and modernity sort of one sort of giving, giving way to the, to the next um, where like pre-modernity is sort of this, this time period of human thinking that's defined by, in a lot of ways, superstition and, and devotion and, you know, religion um, and feudalism, whatever, you, however you want to define it. And then sort of modernity defined by um, capitalism and markets and, and, and liberal democracies, perhaps, <laughs> and what they can do against capitalism and, and, and science and, and things like that. And, and I felt like there was, this was sort of that perfect sort of, or not perfect, but definitely felt like it was playing out on that tension, sort of something that I feel like, I mean, that's, it's definitive of, of, of where we're at now. I think definitely now, like there's a lot of, you know, post-modernity is, is, is definitely sort of a lot of ways where we're at now, but definitely thinking, I think in, in those lines, as you talk about that, but I thought about the the title um, when I was watching the film, and I have it kind of here in my notes. And thinking about there will be blood, and thinking about the when we're talking about violence and thinking about violence, and how I don't know. It's it's almost a very it's a very it almost feels like a very like pessimistic film, and that's like a simple word to use, even pessimistic, but almost like a very just like Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, there's there's a more intellectual word than like hopeless, but I, I'm just going to go with hopeless for now. It almost, it feels like there will be blood. Like, it's just like, like almost like we're fucked. Like we're <laughs> like, yeah. we can't, we can't do this. Like we're, we're all going to like, we're all going to die. We're all going to kill each other and, or we're going to just going to kill the earth. And that's where I guess where I was going with that is it feels like there will be blood. Like there the blood that comes out of Eli or like the, the oil that comes out of the earth is almost like the earth bleeding, right? Yes, so excited that you said that. Yes, absolutely, you're correct. Okay, I'm glad I'm on the right track there. <laughs> but I, I do wanna speak a little bit to the final scene that you, you described a little bit. I know that that's sort of an awkward transition, but it's, it's all interrelated, right? And related to sort of the pre-modernity to modernity and sort of the, it's interesting. I find it so fascinating, the relationship between religion and capitalism, because they're things that oftentimes in our very conventional common discourses that we're exposed to are seem to be like mutually like beneficial and supportive of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think in reality and as sort of exposed by this film, they're very much they're very much not in harmony with each other. They're, they're destructive of each other, I think, in a lot of ways. And one of the things that I found at the end of the film, well, one of my favorite lines delivered by, by Daniel Day-Lewis in this entire film 
was um, when he says, I am the third revelation. Yes. Um, and I was like, oh, that's so interesting. And I think that it actually makes a lot of sense. Like, I do think that, I do think that Christianity for whatever it was, um, you know, during the pre-modern age, whatever it was, you know, before modernity, I mean, not saying that it was great. I definitely don't think it was, but whatever Christianity has been, I think it definitely now sort of, I mean, maybe this is like a really bold thing to say, but I feel like in a lot of ways, Christianity, at least in my experience, has come to like worship money and worship capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an interesting line in that regard where he says, I am the third revelation. And then, and I think it's also fascinating too, in regards to Eli, that Eli has this fixation on this money that he's owed um, mm-hmm. that sort of unmixed causes him to unravel in some really pointed ways. But that last shot where he says, I'm finished. I remember just when I watched it, I was like, I I felt very satisfied with that scene. I mean, I like the way that it felt like Daniel Plainview was was in charge of the film and he was basically saying it's over. I I just, I I thought that was such a power move and it really just like adds to like the gravity of, of, you know, his arc. Um, But I also thought that it felt, it felt kind of, it felt kind of like a Christ reference where he says it is finished or like the famous Bible verse. And to see, to see him say like, I'm finished like that and just sort of put it out there. It just felt like this ultimate, like even though he had already been sacrilegious, it kind of just felt like the ultimate like blasphemy on, on everything having to do with like religion or Christianity, like what's like sacred. It was just, it just like felt like he was just like standing over Christianity and just saying like, it's like, you're over, like you're finished. He, he does that a lot. And I think that's why I have such, you know, Daniel Plainview's a horrible person, we've already said it, but I still have this, this respect for him as a character in the way that he's not really hiding behind anything, not in the way that Eli is, because, you know, you've talked about even, um, you, going back to what you said about Eli's, you know, fixation on getting his money, one of my favorite lines, because it's, it's comical at the end of the film, is when Eli is at Daniel's house begging basically for the money that he's owed. And he says that God failed to inform him of this great financial crisis, which we we assume isn't um, the crash in 1929. Um, And it's just, it's like, we knew you're about money the whole time and now you're admitting it, but you're still putting the blame somewhere else and not, you know, Mm -hmm. on yourself. And it even speaks to a moment earlier in the film where Daniel goes to the congregation for the first time to watch Eli's sermon, to talk to him after the passing, one of the first deaths in the movie. And which also phenomenal performance by Paul Dano, this whole film, but especially- Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and, and Daniel says, you know, this, this thing, this Derek, this, this town, whatever it is you want to say, has the ability to quote blow gold all over the place, and he says it twice. Um, the first time he says it, and then he says it again in a way that's very much, um, very. It's very clear that Daniel is like, I know that you care about money. I know that you want money, 
And if you want money, you're going to listen to me because I am the person bringing you the money. And so it's very clear that from the beginning, you know, although he's doing horrible things, horrible dude, Daniel is still very, very transparent, I think, especially with Eli, because he sees the qualities of Eli that he knows in himself. Um, and so it's just very interesting how not only violence tracks in escalation, you know, the first bit of violence we get is when Daniel breaks his leg in the prologue. And that bit of violence as it escalates to the bludgeoning of Eli as the last bit of violence we see, that escalation is also mirrored by the escalation of the importance of money to both of these characters. And whether it's how much they have or how strenuous it is to get it, you know, those two things go hand in hand. So I'm so excited that you said, you know, about, you know, the earth bleeding this oil because, you know, there will be blood that will always be prophetic, not just to, not just to the film and it's two, um, two hour, 38 minute um, lifespan. There will be blood as long as there is this thing. And, you know, I don't know if Paul Thomas Anderson was trying to, you know, spew any, um, you know, anti-capitalistic message. I don't know if that was his goal, but he successfully did it. And also this, just along that line, this film is adapted from the Upton Sinclair novel, Oil. And while yeah. Oil covers many more things, um, you know, Upton Sinclair, the jungle, this man knew what he was doing. This, yeah. like, if you know Upton Sinclair from your middle school, high school, history, social studies courses, from what you've learned, then obviously this message is going to come through. And it comes through successfully, all while still providing like a beautiful piece of art. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that actually, that actually brings me to, I think potentially, potentially my favorite just like line in the film that kind of felt, it kind of feels like an easy one, but um, let's see, where is it? I'm going to make sure I don't say it wrong, but I, I guess in relationship to what you're saying, like there will be blood as long as this thing exists. I, th I do think that this thing is capitalism. Like that, that would be my personal takeaway. And um, I don't, like I, like you said, I don't know what, I feel like Upton Sinclair would probably be making that point. I don't know about PTA, but I, you know, at the same time, it's like, you know, we're, we're you know, it's sort of up to the viewers in some ways. We kind of have the ability to interpret and, and to understand the meaning of, of, of a production and sort of how it relates to the world around us. Um, but the, the line that I guess comes to mind as I think about that is where uh, Daniel is talking to his, in quotation marks, brother, Henry. And he says, I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. Yes, and, I'm looking at my notes right now. <laughs> yeah, and I just, I don't remember I remember some, I mean, there's scenes from this film that like all the like cinema pages I follow on Instagram and just, uh, you know, whatever other like letterboxed, whatever. Like I see things, I see people talking about like, especially, you know, the, I guess it would be the second church scene. Mm -hmm. um, that's like one that I, I think people go back to a lot. Um, the, the final scene, 
there's a few others, uh, but this scene, I, I completely forgotten about it. And it's so cutting, like, it's just, the line is so cutting. It just like, it gave me chills when I heard him say it. And he just said, and because it's such a simple, it's just such, such simple dialogue, but it communicates so much. I want no one else to succeed. And that sounds, it seems so ridiculous. It seems like so aggressive and just horrible. Like what a horrible thing to say. You don't want anyone else in the world to succeed. Right. Um, but it's, it's like when he says it, and like the fact that he needs to say it, I think says that in, in and of itself says something. And I think that that's sort of where we can identify that violence and where that really comes from. And I think that it really sheds some light on like what our system, uh, how we reward or what we reward in our economy, what our economy really runs off of in a capitalist society is, is that very mindset. That, that is what makes him a great capitalist. He's, he's the archetype of capitalism. He, uh, to me, he is, that's, that, that's his character in a lot of ways. And that line is really definitive, I think. I want no one else to succeed. It's not too many scenes after. It might be the next scene. Um, but he even, they're sitting around and they're talking about with, um, I think Fletcher is there and it's like someone else is there and then his, you know, fake brother and he, they're all there looking at this map. And he even says, why don't I own this? And he's very like emphatic about this. And it's just one thing. And they're like, can't you just build around it? And he was like, no, I want it. And that I think just drives home that the aforementioned scene as well, that he's mm -hmm. got to have every little thing in order to win. And that's all he's focused on. Right, he is the archetype of capitalism. It's interesting. And I wonder, I wonder if there's some significance even there. This is something I wasn't, I don't know. This is a very, very like, infant stage thought but I almost feel like it's 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 so interesting to me that he has like not one but two and pretty much his only family members are both not actually his family members what like like blood family members he's got nobody you know nobody actually that his that is his blood it's just him right there will be blood no I'm just kidding um, I don't know maybe there's significance there <laughs> But that actually is maybe a good segue to talk about a couple of the characters. These, I mean, obviously, Eli, Daniel, we're always going to be coming back to that journey, that sort of that shared arc that they have. But there's th these two other characters that play such huge roles. And I wonder if we could go again to that territory a little bit with these two fake family members. With I guess probably, probably best to start with, let's start with Henry. Yes. Because I think that it's, it's a really, really important aspect of the film, it feels like, but it also is not like something that's there from beginning to end, which is also really interesting. Yes, we could talk about H.W. and Daniel's relationship forever. So let's talk about Henry. Yeah. I think the most important thing with Henry that comes out within this is that Henry is the first person that Daniel kills. And I think that's really what's important from it as well. That, you know, even though Henry had, you know, 
good intentions. I still think that every time I watch it, I try to like grapple with it a little bit more of like, did he just want the money or did he want for whatever reason in his own personal backstory, did he want the relationship with an older brother? Did he feel so connected to the real Henry that he felt like he owed it to him to go and, you know, pretend to be him and form this bond? Whatever it was, like, at the end of the day, once Daniel realized it wasn't actually his brother, he is now a threat, which means he could be coming for anything and anybody, and Daniel's got to get rid of it if he wants to succeed. And I think that is just that little snippet of time in where Henry is in the film. Um, that character kind of pushes Daniel further into this almost a villain arc. If you want to say he's a villain, I don't, I don't really know if we can classify anybody into categories in this film um, because it's so convoluted, except HW. Um, I think he's the one hope that we have, kind of. Yeah, Henry's a very complicated character and yet, kind of just simple and straightforward to the point of how he exists for Daniel's own development, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I mean, one thing that was interesting to me at least, I guess, was just the idea that he kills Henry and he has obviously his logic behind it. And it just, it just feels like what Henry did uh, was deception, right? He, like, he deceived Daniel and I think that he he was he was like you said he was a threat because of that and it just uh, to me it really played and I think in connection with just HW not being his actual son which we'll probably talk about in a little bit um, I think it really plays into how Daniel's character in order to be the most successful oil man he can, it, he has to be imper he has to be impersonal, but he also has to be like almost like not human. Like he can't have like the humanness there. Like because Henry or the person who's I, what is I don't do we even know his actual name? I don't even remember. I think we ever do learn what it is. See, and that's that's like fascinating by itself in a way. We'll refer to him as Henry uh, for simplicity's sake. He, he kind of exists as this, you know, maybe, sorry, this just popped in my head. So this is kind of, you know, infantile stage thought, you know, mm. who are these people without Daniel Plainview, basically? Who yeah. are these people if they don't have these relationships? Because we really only get the name of one person besides people who are directly connected to him. Like we get Mary Sunday because of Eli, because of HW, like that's all kind of like that um, immediate family thing. But other than that, we get very, very few names for very, very long. You know, he is the, the centric figure of this movie. Yeah, definitely. And I, and, but, and then, then there's like, there, there's like almost, that's almost like paradoxical because I feel like he, he doesn't have any like intimate relationships, any personal connections, mm -hmm. any like human connections. It, feel, it feels like to me, and I feel like that was part of the reason why Henry was like I said, such a threat because he knew about who Daniel was other than being an oil man. Even though he didn't actually grow up with him, he, but he knew things about him. 
he had those diaries. So it wasn't just that he knew things from word of mouth. He knew things like he knew all these details of the real, the actual Henry that he knew in his mind and had written down. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, Henry serves as the replacement HW. Like we do see that. W was the one who surveyed the land and, and, and did all of the work. He was the partner in the business. Um, and then upon the accident, upon the fire and him losing his hearing, he couldn't do those things anymore. And we see those very similar surveying shots that we got early on in the film now with Henry by Daniel's side instead. So once again, is it a business exchange? It's a contractual thing. Um, his relationships are kind of defined contractually instead of, you know, through family, even though we see him grapple with the actual, he, he is HW's father and we see him show up in that way. And we also see him run from it as well. But yeah, basically it's just, a, you know, another emphasis on a contractual relationship, whether he actually wanted him to be there or not, at least he had somebody to work with. Yeah, and I think that's a good segue to talking a little bit more about H.W. because that I think that's like the tension that comes up at the end of the film when you have that final exchange between Daniel and H.W. Yes, and you get the you get the you get the sense that that Daniel maybe never ever cared about H.W. Um, so heartbreaking it's still every time every time it sucks it's horrible and you feel so bad for hw but then you think of and i and i guess i even think about this in in the analysis that i read that you wrote um, about how daniel does show certain measures of compassion and care for hw particularly when he does lose his hearing in the accident but that is also then like interplayed with, I guess that, that whole scene is just like, that, that scene is, is bananas. It's a lot to unpack. And I mean, in, in, the, in the paternal way too, like, you know, we see Fletcher running to get HW without hesitation. While Daniel, it takes a little bit longer because he's thinking about the oil. Um, but then, you know, then he does turn very quickly and he has the moment of concern and he takes care of him, but then he's really concerned about the fire. And then he's celebrating the fact that, you know, what do you look so, I can't, I think he says grim to Fletcher. He says, what do you look so grim about? There's a whole ocean um, of oil beneath our feet and I'm the only one who can get to it. Like I'm paraphrasing, of course, you know, once again, he is more consumed by the business. Um, and it, it's heartbreaking every time too, when HW is like yelling for him that he can't hear. And he's like, please don't go, please don't go. And he still goes to like, just, he doesn't even do anything. He just stands there and marvels at the fact that there's all this oil. Um, and so it's a really tricky relationship between the two of them. And there are so many moments where you do see him being the father, being you know, showing up for this, this kid whose dad died in the beginning of the film. Like in the moment when they're, it's right before we have this first ellipses in the movie where we move from the prologue into, I guess you would call it like the meat of the film, where it's one of the sweetest moments, one of my favorite moments in the film. Daniel is sitting on a train 
with baby HW and HW starts to play with his must to play with Daniel's mustache. And it's a really sweet moment. And you can see like the, the, the compassion come across da uh, Daniel and it's a really wonderful moment and it lingers for a little bit. And then we immediately transition into partner and son and father. And that's what we get for the rest of the movie. But without HW, I mean, it's hard to understand Daniel as a complex character. I think it would be much easier to just write Daniel off um, and not have any compassion or empathy for him as a character without HW in the story. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah I agree. And I, I find it so interesting that the, the what, what I guess maybe is the logical conclusion that Daniel comes to when he kind of gives his final rejection of HW at the end of the film in the, you know later on in the 20s or is that in the 30s I can't remember but um the end of the film where you know the logical reason that Daniel gets so upset with him or I guess doesn't get upset with him but sort of rejects him finally is that he's become a competitor and I guess I, I, I guess I'm I guess I'd be curious your thoughts because I, I it feels like definitely like just like the deterioration of that that connection, a connection between people that would go beyond the logic of the market mm -hmm. is is what is taking place. Like that sort of relationship is deteriorated by the market and by the the love for money and the accumulation of wealth and and all those things. At least that's that's I guess the impression that I get. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say, I guess. I think it is really hard to say. And I, I mean, I think there is that aspect. I think it's the, the fact that HW decides to leave and go do his own business that mm. does set him over the edge. I mean, you see it. That's, that's the natural progression within the scene is, is that he's like, you're, I'm going to just, you know, disown you. I'm going to tell you the truth. You know, he, the, the, the famous bastard from a basket, just like yelling it repeatedly at him. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot to sit through, especially because even after Daniel kind of, he, Daniel couldn't even, you know, deal with saying goodbye. I'm going to send you to a school where they can help you. He tricked him and just abandoned him on the train, uh, abandoned HW on the train when he was younger. And then we get this, almost a reflection of it in the future where he then feels abandoned by HW, um, which also, I mean, it's the, it's the decades end of a, of a huge battle, I guess, that we watched happen. Like he, he's being left behind and we don't even know where he's at now because right now he's just, Daniel's just a dude in a big house with a ton of money. The structure of this screenplay of like the, it, it's amazing. The boxing match, these mirror images that are Daniel and Eli where D Eli goes to Daniel after the explosion and Daniel beats him up. He like slaps him around. He shoves him in the oil. And yeah. then, which is one of my favorite scenes. I just think is it's it? so well done. <laughs> yes, it's so well done. And then you also, you know, it's the symbolism too. You know, you think about it all the time. And then there's the, the sim you think about these themes all the time. And there's mm. the symbolism of like shoving the, 
the preacher into the muddy dirt, like the mud, but it's like oil as well. Like mm -hmm. it, it's just another piece of where it all comes together. But then you get this, the one of, I guess it's the more famous scene within the church um, after HW is sent away, where then Eli slaps Daniel in the church and makes him repent for his sins. And like, you get that, that same thing where it's like, they're constantly are going to be doing this push and pull and the scenes reflect that. Like all of their interactions um, are almost, are rooted in vengeance, I guess you could say. You know, not only does violence beget violence in this movie, but, or greed beget, beget greed, but vengeance begets vengeance. And that's this whole push and pull between the two of them. And I think Daniel thinks he's the one in control and along for the ride, but it's in that scene, which is, uh, it's such a good, I mean, this whole movie's great, but it's such a good scene when Eli is having Daniel repeat all these things, like I'm a sinner, et cetera, et cetera. And Daniel's repeating them. And you can very much tell he's like, all right, this is just like, I'm just putting on a show right now. I'm just trying to, you know, win over a couple people. I'm trying to appease my enemy, I guess. But then it's when Eli says, I have abandoned my child, that Daniel takes a beat and he thinks about it. And then that's when emotion really starts to come in. And it's that famous clip of Daniel mm -hmm. screaming that he's abandoned his child. He's abandoned his boy because he knows that he has. Whether or not, like we know he's not his son, but he, that in that moment, we truly see like that side of him come out where he knows that's his weakness or that's the real thing that comes through. And I think he doesn't know how to deal with that. And we see that then again reflected in the future when, when HW tries to leave him and he doesn't know what to do. So he reacts instead of responds and acts out. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I almost feel like it goes back to what you were saying earlier about like nature and how we've the the redefining of nature and that how almost it feels like it's the natural progression of things that the 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 just the masterful way that the story unfolds with the, that scene and just feeling like you feel hopeful that you know HW is going to be fine. He's going to he eventually going to make his way back to Daniel. They're going to be okay. And you almost hope for that at the end of, I don't know what you would call it. I don't know if it's like the second act or what, but you know, the end of before you, before it skips to the future, um, you kind of have the hope a little bit that perhaps HW and Daniel can have that relationship and that, that sort of, that he didn't abandon him. And, and I guess he didn't in a lot of ways, and I think that's interesting because even even like that final, not, I don't know, if, I don't want to call. I'm using the word final way too much right now, but um, the scene in the in like the bar or the saloon, the diner, where yeah. he he really blows up on the what oil are they from Union? He blows up on the guys that he had previously blown up on because they told him how to run his family, and he blows up on him. He talks about how he's there with his boy and everything, and and. I don't know, I found it really interesting. I think that there's, there's an arc there that's really fascinating where 
Paul, no, not Paul Dano. Um, Eli Sunday almost gains the upper hand in the bandy exchange uh, over Daniel, where Daniel gains something by getting that piece of land that he wants, by going to the church and by being exposed and being crumbled and like broken down by Eli in front of a group of people and being slapped in the face and being, you know, forced to, you know, yell all those things. And then I, I feel like he ends up not like, it almost feel like that influence stays and he, and he doesn't abandon HW. And then I think it's very fitting that by the, the next time when he does abandon HW finally, and they have their like that final meeting later in the future and they sort of go their separate ways and he sort of supremely rejects HW and he sort of be, almost like becomes, I don't mean, this sounds like really dark, but he almost like becomes free of HW because it's like, you're not my kid. I don't know who you are. You're a bastard in a basket, all that. And really offsetting what he had been forced to repeat when he was being degraded by Eli in the church. And then it, it makes sense that now, now Daniel is the one who in their next encounter is going to have the power over Eli. Oh, it's just, what a story. And I do feel like it's the natural progression of things. It feels like, like he is going to abandon him. That's, that's the way it's going to work. Like that's, that's the nature. That's the nature of him as capitalism. He is capitalism. That's the nature of it. And I also think, yeah, it's the nature of it to, to just do that sort of have that, I guess, dispassionate, just dominance and, and, and recklessness. Absolutely. And I also think too, like HW is the character that gives us a little bit of hope. Like gives us that, that thing of like, oh God, okay, that was a wild ride. Everything was really horrible, but at least this one guy, like at least things are still intact for him. And mm -hmm. it kind of slashes that away from us. It, it, it's this little pocket of time, but then after that, we still see the brutal murder of Eli Sunday. Um, and it's still that reminder that, you know, capitalism has won, capitalism will remain, all of this will still continue. Um, and it's, it, you know, it, it, what are you supposed to do at the end of the movie? You know, what are you <laughs> supposed to, you can't latch on to anything. Um, oh, yeah. And so I think maybe that also plays a factor as well, that you kind of have to in a natural progression, you have to remove HW in order for anything to continue in the way, in the tone, I guess, that the entire movie has been progressing. Yeah. Oh, so fascinating. So good. Since we were talking about that church scene, it's one of my favorite moments. And I don't know how many times I've said that already in this episode. Um, but one of my favorite moments is at the end of that church scene, the, the the congregation starts singing and Daniel kind of stands up and he turns around he shakes somebody's hand like a member's hand and then he turns around and he goes to shake Eli's hand and you can tell that he's saying something to Eli and you see Eli's face I love it so much you see Eli's face change and I just have no idea what he says to him and it excites Ooh. me every time because I just want to know so badly what the interaction was. And I know it is probably only something Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano know, and I bet you nobody else knows, but I want to know what happened. Um, and it's just another really cool moment 
within the within it, it just within the movie just another really fascinating moment of their exchanges and wondering what's been said between the two of them and what's going to happen and why he comes back in the future and why he kills him I don't know I I, I don't know um, but it's a really fascinating moment I think wow <laughs> now I want to know now, now I'm going to go like rewatch that scene now that you've said that because I did not notice that I did not pick up on that but what you just said, it made me think of just one of the things, and I, I wanted to comment on this when you brought it up, um, about the scene where Daniel first sort of uh, gets violent with Eli on the oil, by the oil pools. And I remember when I watched that scene, like the, the, the number one emotion I can like pinpoint is actually just like, is almost just like fear. Like I felt like afraid during that scene. Like, I was like, this is scary. Like it was, and it was sort of shocking to me. I was like, it felt like it was sort of zero to 100, at, like really like abruptly. Like he just went from like his son going deaf and having this sort of blow up to Eli's coming up. Eli doesn't get a word in before mm -hmm. Dan, or he gets like one sentence in before Daniel's just laying into him physically, verbally, everything. And yeah. it just felt so abrupt. You get the same sense at the end. And I found that really interesting. You can tell from the very beginning, you can tell from the very, very beginning that Daniel hates Eli Sunday, frustrated by every interaction. You can tell there's something building up um, and there's no, there's no running from it. You can just tell it's getting dark very fast, but nothing is really happening with Eli but then I think in that moment that's when the violence on screen really escalates um and even in the way and it speaks to their kind of mirror imagery of one another and their their um kind of facades as as individuals um that he's even saying as as he's slapping him around Daniel's saying to Eli like oh you know aren't you supposed to be a healer aren't you supposed to be some kind of person? Like, why don't you come over and give my son his hearing back? Like he's actively mocking him. And, and, and then Eli, I'm pretty sure in that scene even says like, this wouldn't have happened if you would have let me bless the well. And it's just yep. kind of those, those two very external characters really meeting head to head for the first time, um, really taking it out on one another with like what they think. And, you know, neither, they're never going to see themselves as wrong. And they go after one another when they're very, very similar people. And that is just, that is the entire movie. And ultimately it ends with Daniel being the one with the upper hand. It's just wildly fascinating the amount of different ways you can look at it and you can interpret mm -hmm. it scene by scene. You could take one scene out of this movie and still, you know, gather the same information and then when you start to look at it all at once it's really complicated but still so simple and so easy to understand and everything tracks the whole time in an interpretive way it feels like that yeah it feels it feels like them being super simple there are very similar characters and then Daniel sort of coming out on top it feels like that is that's it, it it's like the 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 film could be a story just about like the history of humanity or an allegory for the history of humanity that, you know, this relationship between religion and capitalism and capitalism comes out on top. You even look at the fact it was released in 2007. Um, you've got 
uh, Bush in office. You've got Cheney making decisions. You have all this, you know, unfortunate. You have all this like uh, tension going on around oil. That's been, go- I mean, it's been going on forever, obviously, but could be a total narrative that fits into the time in which it was released. It's a period picture, and yet it fits the story of its release date, um, which speaks Ooh. to that. Speaks to that as well. Wow. Yeah, that is really fascinating. Now I'm thinking about the relationship between religion and oil in terms of American imperialism in the Middle East. And that just uh, adds on a whole nother layer. Well, and Um, then you- Wow. Yes, you do. And I'm looking at my Adam Naiman Masterworks book right now. And there's this really wonderful, um, I'll send you a picture of this. It's a really wonderful like illustration. This book is amazing. For any Paul Thomas Anderson fans, get this book. It's amazing. Um, Nobody's paying me to say that. Uh, but it says, <laughs> it says oil drainage. Step one, locate your oil. Step two, build your derrick. Step three, kill your rivals. And it really is as simple as that in this movie. And mm-hmm. when you look at American imperialism, especially in the late 20th century to early 21st and now, like it's, yeah. it's, it's a fascinating that's, I just think this film is incredible. I, I, it's just, it's fascinating how far of a reach um, it has and how much we can talk about one movie. But I mean, I, I just, this film is such a it's, a, it's a force of a film. All the things that it's able to tell in one story, you're able to tell the story of Daniel Plainview through however many outlets um, that we get and you get, religion and business you get this you get horror you get critiques of capitalism you get critiques of um you know i'm pretty sure it's Naaman who says the critiques of masculinity come through the critiques of fatherhood and it's just it's it's an incredible film and he he paul thomas anderson made a great movie no matter how you're going to analyze it and look at it it's a great movie because of all these things Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.